My ladies, gentles, in you come, and those who are neither, or some, come hither all such tales to hear of misrule, magic, flight, and fear, of things that unleash pandemonium, and heroes to defend us from them, and for those who thusly need inform me, in the show notes you'll find content warnings. So cautioned, audience, come with me to the Pantaloon Society. Episode 7 The Mask of Misrule Tis the season, beloved audience. A time to be merry and to dispense love to all humanity. A time for gifts to be with one's family and community, whatever shape that family and community may take for you. It being Yuletide, it is also the season when men of a certain age, white of beard and of a theatrical bent, called upon to play a very special and important role. Ho, ho, ho. So, what would you like for Christmas, little one? The child sat on Joe's lap, said nothing, only stared at him in mute terror. Its father nudged it gently and whispered some encouraging words about the latest pony-related toy that was most likely already wrapped and hidden in a cupboard somewhere at home. The child looked at his father but remained silent, occasionally blinking. Eventually, an unpleasantly warm sensation began to seep through the leg of Joe's scarlet polyester trousers. I think the little one has had a bit of an accident. With profuse apologies and a mortified expression on his face, the child's father swept it up off Joe's lap and hurried away. Joe sighed, extracted himself from his wooden throne, quietly explained the situation to a nearby elf, and nipped off to the gents to do what he could with soap, water and paper towels. Hello? I can't really talk. I'm a bit busy. That's quite alright. It won't take long. I have a case. Can you pop over this evening about seven? Yeah. Sure. You sound exhausted. Joe, are you alright? It's Christmas, Veronica. Oh, yes. You're doing the Father Christmas thing. Yep. Well, have fun.
Let us go from one seasonal custom to another, dear audience, for I wish to speak to you of misrule. Perhaps you know the term? Then you, most intelligent and well-read listener, burdened with the heavy weight of knowledge, may skip ahead while I enlighten the rest. Misrule is a time when the world is turned upside down, a season of permitted rule-breaking when all the tensions of the downtrodden are released for a brief period and the ruler may in turn rule over their overlords. It is presided over by the Lord of Misrule, also known as the Master of Merry Disports, the Abbot of Unreason, or Le Prince de Sceaux. The Lord of Misrule and his court of fools and clowns are the mirror held up to the world, appointed during the season to encourage mayhem and tomfoolery and the reversal of the social order. In Britain, the festival was held at Christmas time throughout the medieval period, but sometimes it could last from Halloween in October to Candlemas in February, presided over by some upstanding peasant or minor parish official. Opposition to the custom prevailed throughout the times it was conducted. It was abolished by Henry VIII, restored by his daughter Mary I, and then abolished again by Elizabeth I, and had mainly died out by the time of the restoration of the monarchy in the 17th century. Perhaps the madness of the Civil War had been quite enough misrule for everyone to stomach. Though misrule had fallen out of popularity, the urge to rise up, turn things on their heads, and mock the establishment has always prevailed. In the years when Napoleon occupied northern Italy, the spirited Venetians, including the famous adventurer Giacomo Casanova, used the carnival season and the tradition of hiding one's identity in elaborate masks to mock and criticise the French regime. Napoleon's response was to outlaw the Commedia dell'arte, striking a blow from which the Commedia never truly recovered. On into the 19th century, the enslaved peoples of the plantations of the Carolinas and Caribbean would put on masks and animal horns, or dress in parody of their enslavers, and process from plantation to plantation, demanding libations. The tradition lives on across the islands of the Caribbean each Boxing Day in the Junkanoo Parade. Whenever someone lords it over another without their consent, Wherever folk are subjected to tyranny and exploited, there the Lord of Misrule walks, an outlet for those urges to set right and to append, to free oneself from oppression, to make a pauper of a prince, and the prince of a pauper. Have those educated souls who left us before rejoined the proceedings? Jolly good. Let us return then to our other hero, Jen, who has similarly been summoned to the Pantaloon Society. They have been left with a cup of tea in the properties room by Dr. Harrington, who has gone to fetch something. The properties room of the Pantaloon Society they had discovered did indeed have properties, only some of which were of the theatrical kind. Rows of cases and shelves held a variety of strange objects, items of clothing folded neatly and placed underneath protective sigils, sealed boxes with carefully written labels warning against their being opened without proper precautions, strange pieces of jewellery carefully locked away in glass boxes, items which they presumed were less dangerous sat on display, on stands, a hat belonging to some notable member of the society, a set of old and cracked makeup. Bored, Jen examined some of the properties in question. She idly picked up and read cards, poked gingerly at a clown's jacket with pom-poms down the front, carefully avoided a wooden puppet, and picked up and idly swung an old wooden baton of the sort that clowns used to hit each other with in the past, giving rise to the name Slapstick for that sort of comedy. A small card, slotted in the front of it, proclaimed it to be a Harlequin's Bat, used to signal a change of scenery from pantomime to harlequinade. Alright, Jen. Hearing Joe's greeting, Jen put the baton back on its stand, not quite stable enough, it seemed, for it slid off and dropped, noiselessly, into their brightly coloured shoulder bag. That ain't you. What you been up to? Not much. I went up to Yorkshire to see an old mate of mine. He thought he might have found someone with a present, some girl he'd run away, but she... Actually, I'm not sure what happened up there, but it wasn't that. Something else. Definitely something else. You? Ooh, I met a puka. A fairy. Decent wee fella. 
quite fine once we got over the initial misunderstanding. Never seen one of them. Heard about them from other performers, though. They pop up every now and again. Some of them are nasty. This one was alright. Oh, I forgot to tell you. All the videos we made during the opera murder investigation? You remember the uh, London Ghost Hunter Society nonsense? Yeah. They went viral for like a week or something. All over social media. And my notifications went mad. <laughs> Not sure I want that kind of attention. Okay, didn't they last long? Don't worry. I see until then, nothing does. It was mostly the screaming opera singer bit that was popular. She did have a voice on her. Sorry, I had to go and fetch my tablet. Oh, hello, Joe. Alright, Veronica. What's all this about then? Mm, two things. And the second one is an actual case. The other a concerning pattern. I'll deal with that one first. Dr. Harrington distributed a series of clippings and printouts of articles on the table. They appeared to be a disparate collection of the deaths of young people. Potentially murders, although some reports did not indicate that conclusively. One was a promising young actress. One a children's entertainer. One was simply a small obituary for a young man named William Prendergast, much missed by his parents. I wouldn't have come upon this, but this young lady here's parents have some association with the society. A very old clowning family that's produced several pantaloon performers. The obituary is for a young man whose parents informed me ran away to join the circuit, but ended up on the streets. There are common factors across all these killings. All were done with a knife, from behind indicating a surprise attack. All are in some way associated with climbing, or the performing arts, and all are unsolved. Living on the streets is not without its dangers, but most of these young people had no enemies and no discernible reason for their killings. There's someone killing clowns? Young ones, possibly, yes. Both Dr. Harrington and Joe glanced at Jen. I'll watch my back, I guess? I'd like Joe to do so as well, please, and both of you, while you're out and about. Keep your ear to the ground for any similar reports. Now the other matter, the case. I have received a report from a Mr. Eric Lively. He's a director, Amdram type, currently working on a production of it. Well, the email says they are reviving a traditional mummer's play for the Christmas season at somewhere called Broom Hall in Cheshire. Cheshire. Don't worry, Joe. It's not far from Poynton. Nowhere near Liverpool. I know you don't much like going back there. Joe said nothing, and he nodded. There was a story there, Jen thought, but did not inquire any further about it. They too could understand the desire not to go to places one had once called home. What is mumming, you may ask? if you are not the educated soul from before who may once again skip forward through the stories they see fit. Mumming, or guising, is another seasonal tradition associated with Christmas, but also occasionally Easter or Halloween when it might be known as soul-caking. Mummers would go from door to door at the festive season in question, performing rustic plays for the household in exchange for money, food or drink. It is known across the English-speaking world, first recorded around the 18th century, but perhaps much older than that. The play is usually a simple comic performance, comparatively short and often in rhyming couplets or triplets. Some sword-wielding hero, usually St. George, is slain in battle against a beast or dastardly knight of some kind, or perhaps the dastardly knight is slain by St. George. A doctor with a miraculous potion then appears and awakens the vanquished hero, or villain. Old Father Crispus and Beelzebub, or some local character like Robin Hood, might also appear among the characters. Mumming plays have been subject to recent revivals often associated with morris dancing or sword dancing in the north. 
This particular play was being put on as part of a series of festive markets, concerts and plays at the half-timbered Tudor manor house of Broom Hall. Nestling in a wooded valley among the yew and oak of a park that represented the remnant of an ancient hunting forest, the hall was now under the care of the National Trust, and one of their staff cheerfully greeted Jen and Joe at the door. Yes, the rehearsals were indeed on in the Great Hall this afternoon, and he would certainly go and fetch the director for them. A little later, they were ushered into one of the Trust back offices, which also appeared to be doubling as a dressing room, where a jolly man in tweed with a large moustache greeted them heartily. Ah, hello, hello. I take it you're from the, uh, society? Yeah. You know, I wasn't entirely certain you would show up. I wondered if it was some kind of hoax, you know. <laughs> I posted about these issues I've been having on a theatrical group online, and uh, someone sent me a direct message with an email address. I almost didn't send it, but I thought, well, you know, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> it, uh, it did sound a bit far-fetched, you know. A secret society of uh, theatrical occult experts. Oh no, what are you, alright? What seems to be the problem? Hallucinations, mostly. At least we assume so. Every time we rehearse, someone sees something odd. Laughing ghosts, monsters, uh, an eight-foot-tall green knight swinging an axe in one case. Oh, poor Sheila. She hasn't come back since. I I I'm so terribly worried. I adore my cast, you see, and they're such lovely, wonderful people, giving their time to revive these beautiful old plays. Oh, I couldn't bear it if some awful ghost was haunting them, or cursing them, or something similarly unpleasant. Don't take this the wrong way. We believe you. But I need to check. You've ruled out all the obvious stuff first. Gas leak? Oh, the hall has regular safety inspections. Dodgy food? People generally bring their own food to rehearsals, or go to the hall's cafe. <laughs> you know, the old naffy. No issues from the other customers are there, apparently. Nobody's been ill recently, either. Everyone who's seen anything has been a picture of perfect health. Well, except for Percy. And he's uh, always had a rather poor constitution, bless his heart. I, I don't want to imply that we're blaming anyone at the hall for this. They've been so, so lovely and accommodating. They've even allowed us to use some of their collection for extra authenticity. Is there any, like, pattern to when people get the hallucinations? It's always during the rehearsals. Someone will be halfway through a line or a choreographed stage fight and suddenly it happens. We better watch your rehearsal then. We can tell them we're journalists writing a piece on reviving these plays, whatever they're called. Ah! Mumming. Wonderful folk plays. A forgotten homely art, so simple. I do hope we get to perform it. We'll do our best for you. Ah, thank you, darling. The rest of the cast of the Mumming play were due to arrive for rehearsal so our heroes, Joe and Jen, popped out for the spot of lunch, and to acquire supplies. 
Once they returned to the hall, they set themselves up in the corner, just before the first actors arrived. Have you got the notebooks and the pens from the shop? No, I thought you had them. Hang on a sec, they're probably in my bag. Yeah, here we go. That. Oh, what's this? Why have you got a truncheon? I haven't it. It's not mine, it's, I think it's from the properties room back at the society. Funny, you could have sworn I put it back on the stand. You shouldn't take stuff out of that room. Some of it's dangerous. This one didn't you say it was cast or anything, I think I just said it was a prop for changing scenes. Stick it back in your bag and don't lose it, Veronica will get a spare. Jen did so, and the two of them sat down on uncomfortable orange plastic chairs removed from the stacks lined up against the walls. Once all actors had assembled, Eric clapped his hands and asked the cast to politely ignore Joe and Jen, who were writing an article about the play, just act like they would normally, you know? There were some mutters about the general level of normalcy associated with this production so far, but Eric rallied, and the rehearsal commenced. The play began with an actor in a green fur-trimmed robe, a green mask, and a crown of holly and ivy, who apparently was to represent jolly old Saint Nick, but had clearly borrowed more from Charles Dickens' depiction of the ghost of Christmas present than the early Bishop of Myra. He declaimed in rhyming couplets and introduced the dramatis personae. St. George, in red and white cross tabard and knit chainmail, his face painted silver. The Black Knight in black robes, his face not painted back, because, Eric explained, that sort of thing won't do anymore, and they were using a mask instead. Beelzebub was also masked, a red devil's face with spiralling horns. He, or rather she, for, as Eric explained, the devil was being played by Carol Ormerod, a retired local school teacher, wore red and black patchwork trousers and a suit jacket. None of these costumes was in any way professionally made or of high quality, except for Mrs. Ormerod's, as she had spent many years as a drama teacher, constructing things for school plays. As each character was introduced, Jen began to feel a sense of foreboding. She glanced over at Joe to see what his reaction was, and he glanced back and nodded. The curious aura was the only indication of anything untoward. As has already been mentioned, Mama's plays are not very long. It had already been performed once when the cast stopped to take a break. Joe tried and failed to unobtrusively check the brownies Mrs. Ormrod had brought him to share for anything untoward, of which she kindly offered him one, forcing him to have to politely accept. It did not smell of anything unexpected, and was quite delicious, if a little soggy. Eric pulled him aside while he was still halfway through eating it. Anything yet? Oh. Sorry, eh, n- nothing clear. Anyone seen anything yet? No, nothing so far, I'm afraid. Heartened by brownies and a distinct lack of weird occurrences, the actors began the play again in earnest. Father Ghost of Christmas Past began his introduction once again before the silver-faced St. George lifted his wooden prop sword and the Black Knight put on his half-mask. Both Joe and Jen suddenly started. The Black Knight's mask, made of stiffened black leather so dark that light seemed to fall into it, was radiating a sense of wrongness. Like old blood and twisted roots and half-forgotten nightmares. Hang on. It's the mask! We've got to get to it. It was then that things began to get weird. Mrs. Ormrod was the first one to notice anything. She pointed to stage left and exclaimed, St. George, a strapping young butcher named Dave Oakley, went wide-eyed and turned quite pale. Not that it was possible to tell under the silver makeup. Jen and Joe struggled to their feet and tripped over each other trying to get to the stage. Then they began to hear sounds, at first as if from far away. Galloping hooves, roarings, strange music. The world began to blur on the edges of vision. The corner of the hall was a spreading holly bush, 
The floor glistened with snow which became gradually deeper, covering the toes of Joe's battered workman's boots and Jen's purple Doc Martins. Jen wrapped their cardigan closer around themselves against the chill wind that had sprung up. Before them, the uncomfortable orange plastic chairs transmuted into the stony battlements of the castle. They stood behind the high walls beneath a bluish moon looking down onto a snowy courtyard where two towering figures faced each other down. One, clad in shining plate mail, lifted a long sword with curved quillens, the size of a small shed, to a guard position above its head. The other loomed in coal black greasy chain mail, pouring smoke from the nostrils of its dragon visor. It wielded a short arming sword and a round black leather buckler studded with oil streaked rivets. Among the crowd surrounding the figures, a little scampering devil with twisting red horns, a black face, and glowing red eyes skittered around, shaking a hat and demanding money be put into it. The two huge knights began their duel with a resounding crash. Shining sword thumped against shield and glanced off pauldron. The crowd ooed and art very well placed strike. Duel? Yep, yeah, I'm definitely seeing this suit. Now there was a jingling from above, and Slate swept down out of the sky, drawn by reindeer from with old St. Nick in the driver's seat, swinging a whip across his teeth. Joe briefly wondered if he should take note of the apparition's performance for later, as it had quite an impressive bellowing laugh. Then they were both sitting in the sleigh as it flew through the air, circling around the heads of the huge knights. Jen whooped, enjoying themselves immensely. St. George lifted his sword again and brought it down on the black knight's buckle, crushing it into his body and forcing him to the floor. Then, with a flourish, plunged the blade into his neck, skewering him. Below, the crowd rushed to get out of the way as he fell to the floor. Next to them, in the sleigh, was seated a robed figure in a wide-brimmed hat and a bird-like mask. It hadn't been there before, but now it had always been there. It touched the brim of the hat politely to Joe and Jen. The sleigh banked and began to descend, touching down lightly on the snow next to where the giant body of the Black Knight lay prone. The doctor extracted itself from the sleigh and tripped bird-like over the snow dragging a large leather bag and peered at the knight, touching to itself. Honestly, I think you're a bit late, Doc, he's dead. The doctor opened the bag and extracted an enormous brass syringe full of clear blue liquid, a syringe far too large for the bag itself, and held it up to the moonlight, which filtered through it. Then it plunged the syringe through one of the huge oil-dripping chainmail links in the Black Knight's armour. The giant form began to shudder, and the armour began to collapse in on itself. Black liquid wailed up out of the links and hell, spilling onto the snowy ground and flooding along the floor. It mounted into a great wave that reared up and rolled over the docks, engulfing it. Oh no! As the black wave rushed towards them, a wild idea occurred to Joe, from where he could not say. Perhaps it was luck, perhaps the strange logic of the dreamlike world, or perhaps simply it was a somewhat contrived narrative construct you may have noticed being set up earlier, dear audience. Check off stick, if you will. Jen! The bat! In your bag! Change the scene! You what? Hate the mask! Change the scene! Ooh, hate! Jen reached into her bag and pulled out the bat and hefted the pale oak stick in their right hand. They ran nimbly over the snow and leapt like a dolphin into the path of the oncoming wave, then skipped up and over the crest and danced onto the form of the black knight. Joe saw them lift the wooden stick above their head and bring it cracking down into the huge visor of the knife. Then they were stood on a stage, surrounded by actors in homemade costumes, and a broken mask lay on the floor. Hmm, it's probably best that you head off quickly. 
I'll smooth everything over with the whole staff about the uh, uh, 16th century mask, I think it was. Dave and Charlie are quite willing to take a fall for all this. Unfortunate accident. Bit of rough and tumble during a sword fight and so on. Nobody need know about what happened. Well, what actually did happen? Honestly, we're not sure ourselves. I'm going to hypothesize the mask was haunted by some reality-warping hallucination spirit, and when I smashed it, I released it. I destroyed it. Are you sure we can't take it away with us and put it somewhere safe? Uh, no, I suspect not. It belongs to the hall, you see. However, I will recommend that it not be used in a play again. Well, too fragile, clearly. Potentially impregnated with some sort of hallucinogenic substance, I would say. Is that what you're going to say? Well, it's either that or claim that someone spiked Mrs. Omerod's brownies. <laughs> uh, anyway... I shan't be letting this thing near my actors again. Though that, you can be sure. That'll have to do. Alright, let's get off before anyone asks any more questions. Bye! Joe and Jen strolled away through the yews and oaks of Broomhall towards the gravel park, where Joe's battered old course was waiting. Snow began to fall, alighting on the half-timbers of the hall and dusting along deep green branches of the yews. As she walked... Jen slipped a hand into their bag, and ran a finger down the wood of the bat, smiling to themselves. And out beyond the edges of the world, out of thought and memory, out of time itself, there was a stirring. There was a clamouring. It was the stirring and the clamouring of fell hounds and the pounding of dreadful hooves. The stirring and the clamouring of fell hounds and the pounding of dreadful hooves, and the hue and the cry of terrible things being called, being summoned by the master. The Pantaloon Society is a Cytochrome Hair production by Lou Sutcliffe. A.M. Pronouns. Distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. Eric Lively was played by the Saturnine Mike Cutchie, and all other voices were provided by Lou Suckler. This episode used sounds from freesound.org. For full accreditation, content warnings and transcripts, please see the show notes. To be kept up to date on the show, please do follow on Twitter, at PantaloonSock. Farewell, dear audience, and thank you for listening.